Welcome to How a Contract Explained, a podcast by the Hawaiian Airline Pilots Master Executive Council that takes a deep dive into our PWA and its various sections. I'm Ethan Pearson Pomerantz, the Strategic Planning Committee Chair, and joining me today is Chad Holcomb. He's a uh, 321 Czech Airman and the Chair of the Vacancy Committee. How you doing, Chad? Hello, Ethan. I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks for stopping by and helping out with this one. Let's get started with a big picture thing instead of something specific to the contract. It's a phrase we throw around a lot. It probably goes back to the Wright brothers. Bid what you want and want what you bid. What does that mean and why do we tell people that when they uh, they call? Well, that's that's a great phrase. Um, and I'd say the biggest thing is is folks don't realize, you know, this is their career. Um, so this decision is a huge decision. And, and by... Um, Doing that, you kind of keep yourself out of trouble. So chances are, especially these days, the way we're doing planning ahead of time, uh, what you do get awarded, you will most likely be training in. So that is definitely an important one and uh, something to do every time a vacancy bid comes out. Just put some thought into the process before definitely you put uh, some thought into the fill process. Out the, fill out the yep, form. Yep. Our contract splits everything up into category vacancies. Uh, you know, we have a vacancy that's run for the bid, but it, but it references these category vacancies. What is actually a category vacancy? Category vacancy is listed in the contract of all of our, our specific categories. Um, that starts from 787 captain to captain of A330, and it goes in a specific order. And with each of those categories, the company puts out <clears throat> how many seats they will need to fill for each category. And um, we essentially mostly just pertain to permanent category vacancies these days. There is contract language for temporary, but uh, that's not something I've seen in my tenure. And that's what's the difference between the two of them. So the permanent is just something that's greater than 90 days uh, in terms of what vacancies are being filled. Uh, temporary is more short term. I, I think we did more of that during um, summer flying and back in the good old days. I think when they did more seasonal stuff. Okay, I've I've not seen anything. Uh, during my tenure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not that familiar with temporary, if I'm being honest. And we used to have this staffing formula that was very specific. Anybody here after 2017 probably isn't familiar with it, but pre-17, we had a very specific staffing formula. You total up all the hours in this and total up all the hours of that and divide by this and multiply by that. We don't have that anymore. How does the company come up with how many category vacancies they need? You know, how many 717 FOs versus how many 321 captains or whatever it might be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, Ethan, I don't I don't know the specific details to it. They give us obviously an explanation of why they're doing what they're doing and per the contract, they are required to share certain detail in that explanation. But in terms of the planning, uh, that goes higher up in commercial in the company and they work out the numbers and then it trickles down. So. I don't have any knowledge of a specific staffing formula myself. We're going to picture uh, them throwing have, it. No, I'm, yeah. I'm picturing them throwing darts at a board on the wall. I <laughs> hope it's, and I think it's beyond that. These days they've come quite a long way and, and um, being more proactive with their planning. But essentially when it gets to us, they give us the explanation uh, to why they're doing what they're doing, which is required per the contract. But as far as the specific staffing formula, um, it, it does not seem to be one specific number in terms of like say freight you know they want seven crews per airplane so they come up with a number that they need for each category whether it's you know 330 fo and 330 uh, freighter captain or whatever it is and then there's a process to running the bid from start to finish so let's let's walk through that first thing is a notification bulletin a vacancy notification bulletin what is that and how long do we have to see that for that's something that is outlined in the contract essentially from the pilot's perspective that's just their notice that 
there's a vacancy bid out. And if it's for existing categories, that's a 14 day window to which pilots can think about that and decide what they want to bid. If it's something that's new equipment, uh, I think typically that's 60 days off the top of my head is what the contract requires. So it's a longer uh, window for, for folks to think about what they want to do and, and bid for what they want. And then essentially, once that window is closed, uh, the bidding is done, and then we move on to the award process after that. And how long does the company have to, well, it's the company and you, you participate in the award process. How long do they have to get that done? Yeah, so the vacancy bid has to come out during the week, Monday through Friday. Um, and then that 14-day window, of course, once it expires, they'll have four business days to uh, publish the award. Okay, so once... Once the window closes, everybody's got to sit around for four days, up to four days anyways, and wait. It could be faster. Going back to the um, notification bulletin, the beginning there, you know, there's, there is a big list in the contract, and I agree we don't need to go through everything in there, but there's a couple important things, I think. Obviously, the number of category vacancies in each category, you know, how many whatevers are we adding, how many 330 captains are we adding, or 7-8 captains and whatnot. There is, and this is new with the, with the new contract, there's a window in there that's published of when you might start training. That's something with our new PWA that um, we're seeing come into play now. And essentially, the nice thing about it is once you have an award and you know what category you've been awarded, whether it's a new one or your, your uh, well, I guess it would be a new one. And, and let's say you need some kind of training, whether it's transition or, or a full initial course or whatever it may be. Essentially, the following month with the pairing packet, you will now get a training start date. So you'll know when you're going to start training. That training start date will happen in a four-month window that they will also give you with the vacancy uh, bid uh, notice. So you will know, for example, our last uh, bid came out and they said the training months will be January, February, March, April. So at least you know, okay, I'm going to start training in one of those months. I'm not going to finish training by April, but one of those months I will start my training and depending on how long my training shell is, I'll finish at whatever date that is uh, down the road. So at least you'll have a better idea of when you're going to start and then uh, when your shell will go to. And at that point, the expectation is you would then be back on the line in that new category. And the training shells are published in that vacancy notification yeah, that, bulletin that's also. That's correct. So you can kind of do some decent math. It's not perfect because again, your start date's going to be somewhere in that designated four month window. So if you started January, again, if the window's January, February, March, April, you know, then of course you're going to finish much sooner than if you started April, you know, if your shell length is 60 days or 30 days or, you know, you're going to finish later in the year. So it is not perfect in terms of, um, they can't tell you exactly, you know, your finish date, um, but you at least get a much better idea of when you'll be starting training. And that's uh, for the pilot group overall. I, I think that's a, a big, big improvement. It was always an unknown. The, the only thing that was published prior was the effective date. And that's all you knew. Yeah. And now at least you'll know the training as well. There's really one date that pilots, I shouldn't say all pilots, but many pilots care about is when do they get paid for their new category. And the notification bulletin, the vacancy notification bulletin has that effective date of the vacancy. And that, that plays into that. But there's also the um, activation date. What, what's the difference between the two and, and how do those matter to pilots? Yeah, so that comes up um, quite a bit because those are the dates that typically will trigger the pay in that new category, assuming you're going up to a higher paying category. So activation, essentially, that's defined by your first revenue trip you know, or your first day of reserve. 
and that's what will start that new pay rate. Conversely, the effective date can also start that new pay rate in the event they haven't trained you by that effective date. You would then start that uh, higher pay category, which has been the case for a lot of folks because they were so far behind on so many past awards. Of course, the company, their goal is to never get to an effective date and still have folks to train uh, with the new contract and the new um, approach we're taking. Hopefully we'll see that um, be reality. I just saw an email the other day about a, a new standing bid form. I think we're finally moving into maybe the 20th century of technology with this. Let's talk about standing bids. What is a standing bid before we get into the details of how you actually accomplish that process? Yeah, the 20th century, that's about right. So uh, a standing bid is, is essentially what's required to be on file. Every pilot per the contract is required to have a standing bid. And that's essentially their preferences for the categories that they would like to bid for. Uh, and of course, seniority will determine whether they'll be awarded those categories. So, so that's just a fundamental requirement that hasn't changed. And what has changed with the new standing bid app is we, yes, we have indeed uh, taken a big step forward to use those, um, those things on the desks in the office called uh, computers. And uh, this app is essentially going to allow us to collect that standing bid uh, data and information in an electronic format. It's, um, it's a big step in the right direction so that uh, we, we now have that data as it comes in electronically, we can keep it electronically. And um, prior to this, it was not electronic. We would actually print that data out. And, so uh, again, each time you submitted an updated bid, standing bid, it was printed? It was printed and put in a book. And kept. And then have to manually <clears throat> sort through that book and utilize that data in, on a piece of paper, which is very inefficient and led to and, and still leads to a lot of errors and other issues due to the growth of our pilot group going from, you know, 500 folks, you could get away with those manual processes, but, you know, 1,236 pilots or however many we have, um, it's definitely not working. And, and so it's a big step in the right direction to further automate our whole uh, process overall. I've actually sat in on one vacancy processing day and it was, it was quite an eye-opening experience. One of the things that makes our bids more complex, I think, than other places, we do contingency bidding, which is yeah. not a standard thing across the industry. It's a benefit to us for sure, but it does add to the, the confusion and the, the difficulty in the process. Let's talk about contingencies a little bit. What are they sure. and what is the benefit of having them? And Sure. Yeah, it, it is. You're right. It's unique to us. And it definitely, while it provides a lot of benefit, it definitely provides a lot of confusion. You know, essentially what they are is they allow you to preference within a category by numerical preference or a per percentage preference. So for example, if there's 200 FOs in the category you want and you don't want to fly, if you're not at least within the top 100, then you can do a numerical preference and you can put 100 in there and you will only get awarded if you're 100, you know, number 100 or less on that list. Um, so it gives you some ability to control your quality of life so that, you know, you're not what we call the plug um, if you don't want to be. And so that's nice. Where it causes confusion is contingencies applied uh, to a category you currently are in are disregarded. So that's one common thing that uh, folks get confused on. So if you're a 330 FO and you're bidding for a 330 FO, at that point, the contingency will not help you. Um, it won't apply for the award because you're already in the 330 category. So you couldn't be removed from a category because yeah. you no, can't hold No, because you have a contingency, yeah. So that, can, that, that throws people off a little bit. So contingencies are only good for bidding to another category. 
they're not good for changing your your standing in your current category. So that's one important thing um, I try to make sure people understand. Um, and then beyond that, uh, the other thing that we see a lot is folks out contingency themselves. So they, you know, say, I want to be number 25 on the airplane, and then they're number 26. And in reality, being 25 or 26 is not going to change your life. <laughs> so that's the other thing we caution folks. Just think about what you're putting in for contingency. Give yourself enough buffer that uh, you're not going to be bummed if you miss it by one seat. Displacement. Fortunately, that's not something that's happening right now. It's not something that's happened for a while, I think. How does that process get handled when the company realizes there's too many pilots in a specific category and they need to reduce the size of that category? Yeah. So again, um, if you're in a situation where we're going down, we call it, um, you know, that's obviously not a good thing. And essentially they're having to reduce staffing in categories so they can do that through a displacement bid. And in that case, maybe the category has 150 FO seats again, <clears throat> for example, 330 FO, maybe there's 150 seats and they need to reduce it to a hundred seats. So 50 pilots are going to be displaced out of that category they can then bid to where they want to go and if they can they'll hold and get awarded whatever they can their seniority will allow but at that point um, they're going to be displaced and they're going to have displacement rights and and those rights will allow them essentially to bump into other categories that their seniority will hold even if there's not any openings in that category say say there's no change to 321 fo they're they're keeping the same number of 321 fo so there'd be no opening that 330 fo could go in bump into that category and essentially displace a 321 fo off the bottom yeah that that's a good point ethan exactly that's exactly what would happen and we call it bumping in and so if their seniority could hold that 321 fo seat uh, they're more senior to the most junior person on the airplane, then they would hold that seat, they would bump in, and then, yes, the, the, the pilots off the bottom would then get displaced and, uh, again, continue that process until everybody found a new home. Uh, you mentioned training freezes as part of the displacement process and how a displaced pilot doesn't actually generate a freeze when they move to a new category. What is a freeze and why does the company want them? Yeah, the training freezes, I think, essentially is to keep the operation moving somewhat efficiently. Um, as you can imagine, we've had a lot of vacancy bids uh, through the last couple of years. And we've had a lot of movement between those awards, even where people jump from one category to the other. So it gives a little stability in staffing. So I'll just say, generally speaking, reach out, you know, let us help you because every situation is unique. Um, but essentially, you know, you have common types of freezes. For example, if you go from one category to another, you're going to most likely be frozen. If there's any kind of initial or transition training required, it's up to the company. They don't have to freeze you. Again, you know, there's common freezes that people understand and expect, but there's other ones that um, can catch people off guard. You know, for example, if they're going back to an airplane that they've been in, they may carry, you know, for example, 787. Someone's going into new equipment and they're frozen on the 330 but they're eligible to bid to the new equipment there's no freeze for there's no freeze for new equipment as long as you're eligible you can bid from 330 fo or, or 330 captain or whatever you are whatever category you can bid to that new equipment category and if you can hold it if you have a freeze you can move even though you're frozen but you will take that freeze with you and you could incur uh, you will incur a new 24-month freeze not to exceed 36 months total. So essentially, they'll take a new 24 months plus whatever you brought with you 
not to exceed 36 months. So that's a common thing we're seeing right now for some folks who do want to go over to 787 and they are frozen, but they're eligible to bid it. That's another example of a freeze. It's, you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's not, not common, uh, but it's, it's going to be significant for that individual. So new equipment, are there any other cases where you could break a freeze or carry a freeze with you somewhere else? So upgrading is a big one. Um, you know, if you've kind of the way they have it structured, if, if you've served as a first officer or you, or you served on that airplane before and you're going um, to upgrade on that new category, then that's something that is allowed uh, per the contract. So you can go from a 717FO to upgrade to, say, a 321 captain as long as you've served on the 321. Uh, typically, you, you would have served in the FO role. So uh, in that case, you could break your freeze. And again, you would incur a new freeze, um, not to exceed that 36 months, uh, depending on what was remaining on your on your uh, freeze that you brought with you. And when do the freezes actually start? When, when does your clock start ticking over? This is another big one. Great question. Um, so this is one that we get a lot because it is quite confusing. So there's a few milestones that are important to understand about freezes. Say you're 717 FO, you bid to 330 FO, and with that, you're going to incur a new 24-month freeze on the 330 side. But you haven't started training yet. So as long as you haven't started training yet, that freeze hasn't taken hold yet. You're still actually eligible to bid out of that category prior to day one of training. So that's milestone number one. You can still bid out as long as you haven't started training. Once you've begun training, you essentially are under the mercy of that freeze. The freeze hasn't begun chronologically, but you essentially are no longer eligible to bid out of that category. And milestone number two then comes when you're activated. Uh, so as soon as you're activated in that new category, that's when the 24 months actually begins. So that's kind of a confusion too. Some folks think, well, it begins at the start of training. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It actually begins at activation. That's when the clock starts ticking and that 24 month calendar um, will, you know, um, go to whatever date that is. And that's, that's when your freeze will be updated. So there's some confusion on freezes mainly as well, because there's placeholders. So like when a word comes out, a lot of the freezes that are published aren't really accurate because they don't know when you're activated yet. So they're just guesses. Uh, so when you've been awarded a new category in the case I just gave, you're going to get a guesstimate freeze. That's going to be off the effective date usually of that award. But most likely, you're going to early activate, meaning you're going to activate prior to that effective date, sometimes a lot prior, months prior. When, when you do activate is when your actual freeze uh, calculation will begin from that activation, and your actual correct expiration will then be updated and shown. If your activation, when you actually finish up training and start flying, is after the effective date, does your freeze start then at the effective date that they gave you originally or does it wait until the activation yeah another good question that's been unfortunately more normal and common than it should there are two dates that are important it is activation or effective so in the event which we've unfortunately seen more common than normal uh over this last year last couple of years really in the event that you've been waiting for training for a couple of years and yes. you've long passed <laughs> your effective date, you are correct. Uh, that training freeze started now at that effective date. So in some cases, we've sadly had some folks who by the time they're activated, they don't have a freeze anymore. Really the earlier of then earlier of the activation. Perfect. There you or go. Absolutely. Or effective. But date. we'd expect yeah. these days it's going to be your activation. You would expect it's going to be your activation. Yeah. When you look at a category award, so the list of all the pilots and where, where they are, 
they've all got numbers next to their name, how senior they are in that category. A lot of the numbers or some of the numbers have parentheses around them. Uh, they're being held in excess. Uh, wh what does that mean? Why is that a thing? That's one that um, it's a little more obscure, but, it, but it's important to understand the basics of it from a pilot perspective. The contract outlines a lot of the different reasons why you'd hold someone in excess, whether they're an instructor, whether they're, you know, staff, uh, you know, a Section 8 pilot working in the office, just lots of different reasons, whether they're on leave of absence. So essentially what that means is that person is not taking up the vacancy for that airplane. So if there's 100 vacancies, again, for that category, that person does not count towards filling one of those vacancies as long as they're held in excess. They can fly if, if they're not on a leave or something, but if they're an instructor pilot, they're held in excess. They can still fly in the airplane, but they're not counted towards the total number of pilots required. So it's a benefit to the, the pilot that's, group that's as a whole. It, it means that's more correct. pilots in a category yes. than spots. So, really. so in the case where the company staffing uh, requires them to have 100 vacancies, um, they might actually have 120 pilots awarded that plane. And in some cases, as you pointed out, some will be actually flying the airplane and physically in the seat, others maybe will not, you know, if they're on leave of absence or, or whatever the situation may be. So yeah, it's a great benefit to the pilot group, I'd say, um, overall, because it, it essentially opens up some extra seats. One new thing we're seeing, I think, with the quick access to upgrades is pilots who aren't sufficiently qualified for the upgrade per the FARs. How are we handling those pilots now that they can hold mostly 717 captain, but don't have the thousand hours of 121 time to legally hold captain? That's one that we saw for the first time. That was a bit of a shocker um, that, again, I mean, sign of the times. We're all so blessed right now to see such great growth and opportunity. Um, but I think we had um, one of the prior awards. It was a four and a half month um, seniority pilot holding 717 captain. So essentially what the PW lays out for, for those folks now is that um, you can bid and be awarded that category but you'll continue to remain in your current category at your current pay rate until you're sufficiently qualified, at which time the company will then get you into training and get you upgraded. That was actually language that was part of the negotiation on that recently, just because it hadn't been a thing prior. We'd never really seen that. One other thing that is a change that was negotiated more recently is how, if, you, if there's been multiple vacancy bids out and you've moved through multiple categories during those bids, Historically, the company was required to train you in every vacancy that you've ever held in sequential order. They couldn't skip around. So if you were a 717 FO and then you bid to 321 FO and then before you'd actually started training, you'd bid 330 FO, they had to train you as a 321 FO. That's no longer the case, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, and that's a big, that's a huge advantage. I mean, it's not only a huge advantage just to, to the company, but it's really been a big advantage to the pilot group. Um, and again, we're, we're kind of, it's not going to be the norm that we have six vacancy bids in a year and, and you know, four awards to train to. Hopefully the company will, will train to each award before they kind of get the next one going. But the nice thing about that was that once that was negotiated, it really allowed people to get to where they wanted to be. Rather than torturing them and putting them through 717 and 321 only to get to where they want to be, 330, the company then was able to just say, let's just get them to the 330. If somebody ends up someplace they didn't want to be, for a legit reason, I, was, I mean, we went back to how we started, want what you bid. But if there's a legit reason that somebody had a, a bid in and they're supposed to go to training now and they can't, they, it just really isn't going to work with their life for whatever reason, is there any any outs that people have? You know, it's it's really rare once you've been awarded because unfortunately, um, 
the, the vacancy award is, is such a crucial thing for your career, which is again, back to what we started with, you know, bid what you want, want what you bid. And that is such a, it's not a permanent decision, but it's, it's one of the biggest decisions you'll make in your career and has the biggest impact. And, and unfortunately we're all connected, you know, we're all brothers and sisters here tied by these seniority numbers and it's a domino effect. So once the award has been published, it's very difficult to make changes. Um, there is a clause in the contract, a hardship clause. That's way above my pay grade. And every <laughs> once in a while, you know, we do unfortunately have some folks that, you know, whether it's bitter's remorse or whether life had changed on them, you know, they might have a hardship. And the best I can speak to it is I typically encourage those people to reach out to the chief pilot and to reach out to their union rep and then um, discuss their, their life situation. Now that we've got this new process of publishing a four month window where all training starts for a specific category will we'll fall into uh, and then the training shell so you know the duration. The idea is that it's a shorter time frame now that they're going to run more frequency vacancies, smaller bids with fewer movements. I think we saw it actually in this last one where it was, wasn't a very big vacancy. No, yeah. Um, hopefully they run more of them more frequently. The likelihood of training out of order with like a, a more junior pilot going instead of a more senior pilot, not because the senior pilot didn't want to go, uh, but because that's how the company set up is less likely, but we still do have bypass in the contract to address those situations. How does that work? Yeah, that's correct. So there are going to be reasons um, for staffing and, and operational necessity where the company may need to bypass uh, certain uh, pilots that have been awarded a category. Um, we have what we call a one-for-one -one system. So it's key that it applies with two criteria. One is the pilots must be on the same bid award and they must be in the same category on that award. So for example, let's say we have seven pilots that have been awarded 330 FO. And for some reason, the company needed to skip past in seniority the first six pilots and they sent number seven, who is junior, to training ahead of the other six. At that time, once that seventh pilot is activated, that will trigger the one-for-one -one bypass to which number the number one pilot would start receiving the higher pay rate for that category. Uh, and then if number six subsequently goes to training early or again, another junior pilot goes to training early, then the next most senior person would be the same thing. As soon as that junior pilot activates, they would start receiving uh, bypass pay at the higher category that it's they were awarded. One. It's a one for one in the sense that if number seven goes, only number one gets paid, number two through six don't get anything correct until somebody junior goes and the number two it. would and be number eligible two would get eligible yes and you did clarify that it's by category so just because a, an fo goes to training before a captain doesn't mean that the doesn't senior captain anything. starts getting paid and where their folks get confused too is they 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 look at like a a different category where 330 versus 71 well i'm more junior or i'm more senior to that person so it has to be on the same award and it also has to be in the same category the category you're going to, not the category you're coming out of. That's correct. Going to. Bypass is one way that a senior pilot can get paid without actually going to training yet. Uh, there's one other thing, relatively new, came about with the 787 onboarding. Uh, as far as electing not to train a pilot, uh, this applies to pilots that are older than 63 as of the effective date of a vacancy, correct? That's correct. Yep. They're within 24 months of retirement. Um, 
and the calculation starts from the effective date of the award to their age 65. And this played more of a role, I think, when we had different pay rates for the 7-8 and yes, the 330. Yes. Now that it's the same, I think we actually saw this last vacancy, a lot of people are electing not to go over and just stay where they are. But hypothetically, in the future, if we were to have different rates between aircraft, what's the benefit of this for the pilot and for the company? I, I think from the pilot group, their perspective is, you know, a lot of folks, of course, want the higher pay that their seniority affords them, but they don't really want to train this late in their career. Um, not always, you know, there's, there's a few that did want to go 787 and are bummed that, you know, they, they aren't um, being trained in it. But essentially, the, the main benefit is for a lot of the folks that are in close to retirement, uh, they essentially can hold the category, they can get paid in the category beginning again on that effective date, and they don't need to bother, you know, learning a new airplane just before they retire. Um, if they do, uh, again, this is company's discretion. So it's not a given that you're not going to training. It's just the company has the discretion not to send you. Want what you bid. Yeah. So in some cases, you know, some folks, uh, you know, can find some surprise in that the company is going to send them maybe. Um, most cases, I think not. But in the event they do elect to send someone to training, essentially they have to then send everybody younger to that person to training as well. They can't skip over eligible um, pilots, if that makes sense. So it's not limited to 24 months. It's just, it can't be greater than 24 months, but they could elect to send everybody who is within 12 months of training, but anybody with, I'm sorry, 12 months of retirement, retirement to training, yes. but anybody with less than 12 months, they're not going to send, but they couldn't then send one guy with only six months. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So once you decide to send one, you, you have to go in order um, for anybody that is, I guess, younger. Yeah. It's a little confusing depending on which way you look at it. And they have been doing this, yeah, on the, the it, it it can happen. Yeah, it can happen. I mean, I think I think generally speaking, you know, the company um, is trying to get their staffing in such a way that they don't, you know, need to do this because I think it is to their benefit, of course, that they don't have to do extra training events. And in all fairness, the junior pilots that are waiting to get into that seat too, um, it's more efficient for everybody. Uh, unfortunately, there are cases. That I will say, I've talked to some some captains who were kind of bummed. You know, they wanted to go. And with the uh, onboarding of the three hundred and thirty freighter, this is the first time we've had two different categories: the freighter and passenger, are different categories with the same aircraft. Essentially, it's the same yeah. type for the yes. three hundred and thirty. There's, yes. I don't just, you know, I think the differences are mostly the uh, cargo door. Mm -hmm. How is that working? What What are the differences and how the the bids play out when you've got? what's essentially the same training footprint. We're doing OEM on the freighter right now and not on the passenger Correct. side, but eventually they'll be the same. Correct. You have identical training, but different categories. How does that work? Yeah, this is a big one um, because it is a little, a little, it's a lot different, you know, for what we're kind of used to. So essentially you said it right, same aircraft, different category. So it's treated as the same aircraft, which the first thing why that matters is because if you're on the 330, you can move between 330s. So if, if you're eligible to bid, um, you can go from 330 passenger to 330 freight. Uh, so that's one big thing. And you're not going to incur a new training freeze. Um, you're going to take whatever freeze you have with you, but you, again, can move if you have a freeze. So similar to upgrading, if you were going on the same aircraft from FO to captain, you would just take your freeze with you. So it's treated similar to that scenario. The other difference is on the freighter, if you're awarded the freighter and you've begun your training on the freighter, the freighter does have a mandatory 12-month freeze. Now that freeze is a little different. We call it the freighter freeze. 
that freeze does prevent you from now moving back to the 330 passengers until it has expired. And again, it'll be calculated off of either activation or effective date as we discussed earlier. So that is one exception going from freighter to passenger. But if you're a passenger and you wanna go freighter, uh, there's nothing that'll hold you back. Um, if you're frozen, you can take that freeze with you. I think that about wraps it up. It's, uh, it's a complex section of the contract and it's one that most pilots only see four or five times in their career. You're not moving aircraft too frequently here, but it definitely is one that it's important to know the ins and outs of because it does affect you long-term as you move into a new category and through the training footprint, which can always be a stressful time in everybody's yeah. life. It's really important to know what contractual rights you have and, and how the process will work. Chad, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it and helping explain this section. I want to add, there are some infographics that uh, accompany this podcast. You can download them. There'll be a link in the show notes and it'll be sent out via email. There'll also be some Instagram and other social media posts pertaining to this. Uh, if you're not following how pilots at Instagram, please do so. Check out the memes. And uh, there will be our monthly quiz about this stuff, uh, all the vacancy information that you can win a really great gift card at the end if you've got the answers correct, random drawing at the end of the month. This has been Hal Contract Explained, the monthly podcast of the Hawaiian Airline Pilots Master Executive Council that explains our contract one section at a time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.